Just want to really encourage any of you who are not away on holiday in three weeks' time to make sure you're here. We think it'll be quite a, a moment in the life of our church. We've got a friend, a fairly recent friend that Debbie's made, and we've Skyped a number of times now, who lives in uh, South Carolina. He's a pastor, leads a church there. And uh, he's also very prophetic, and he believes God has called him to come and impart something to us as a church and indeed to us as a vineyard movement across this nation. And we're basically going with it by faith. We're trusting that there's something in this. And uh, his name is Chad Norris. He's written a book, which I just listened to during my holiday last couple of weeks on Audible, audiobooks. He reads it himself brilliantly. And the book is called Mama Jane's Secret, Walking in Deep Friendship with God by Chad Norris. You can get it if you want it on a, a well-known website. And... Um, Basically, that's his modus operandum, walking in deep friendship with God. He reckons that the closer you are, the more childlike you are, really, in your relationship with God, the more you'll hear what he's saying, and he's highly prophetic, the more you'll see what he's doing, the more you'll participate and say what he's saying, and, and so on. So that's on the 15th of July, three weeks' time. Today is the third in this series that I'm doing on the subject of work. And previously I've spoken about finding meaning in our work and how to persevere when work beats us down. And this morning I want to look at being an influencer, an influencer at work. And I want to begin today with an interview. Would you please welcome Ben McCalla? Ben is a science teacher. And uh, so tell me, Ben, what difference does having a faith make to you being at work? So a foundational element of having a faith at work for me is just the element of wanting to do a good job. So being a science teacher, something that I'm very keen to do is try and give the students the best education that I can. I don't always succeed, but I go into work every morning thinking that's what I want to do. I want to work like I'm working for God. But particularly with this job, I only just started in September, is... I felt, I felt like it was my mission field. Mm -hmm. Nothing majorly grand, but I just want to try and be salt and light to the people that I work with. What does that look like, being salt and light at work? So our science office, we've got about 15 to 20 science teachers, great team, lots of fun, lots of chat, lots of jokes and banter, and I wanted to try and join in with that as much as I could, because I wanted them to you know, enjoy spending time with me and vice versa. And the salt element of it is joining in with that fun and jokes and, all, and laughter and all that sort of thing, but knowing where the line is, you know, with things like language or subjects or what people are saying. Sometimes it can get a bit, you know what I mean, a bit like, oh, gosh, that's, that's, that's not where I want to be. And just stopping and potentially having a bit of fun with that and just saying, that is just too far, not, not joining in with that. So that's kind of where the salt bit is at the moment anyway. And the light bit is... Uh, I'm sure you're all, you're all very aware of what it's like when you're at work. Sometimes someone does something wrong and people can be quick to jump on that or maybe they go out the room and they're like, you know. And I want to be one of those people that, that just champions other people. If they do something well, I'll be very verbal about saying well done, you know, just simple things. And if, if people are maybe talking about someone who hasn't done a good job or that they don't like or whatever, just staying out of that. But then as soon as there's the opportunity to try and get in there and say, but do you remember when they did this thing? That was great, you know, and, and just try and do it in a really 
natural way. Yeah. In the world of science, sometimes people say, oh, well, religion or belief in God is sort of pitted against science because that's all you know, two uh, dichotomous concepts, if you like. Uh, sorry to use such a long word. It's not in my... Uh, it's good. <laughs> no, it's good vocabulary there. And uh, it's probably the wrong tense anyway of dichotomy, but whatever. Um, how, does, how does being in a science department, how does that affect the way you're able to share your faith? So I had, I had a great moment the other day. I'm very fortunate to be in a Church of England school, and uh, we have assemblies that you can probably remember going to when you're at school, but instead of assemblies, they're called acts of worship. And people will cover various different topics, and I was able to do one the other day that was all about uh, relationships and connecting with people. And during that act of worship, I was able to be very open and honest about my faith. And uh, we here, we, we lead or help lead a, a national youth festival called Dreaming the Impossible every year. And I talked about DTI, Dreaming the Impossible, and how it was changing young people's lives and breaking through mental health and just being very open. And at the end of it, one of the sort of higher profile students whose behavior is, isn't that great, I'd had a run in with him before about something stupid. And he just came up to me at the end and said, but sir, you, you say you're a Christian, but you're a science teacher. Like what? And, uh, and I only had a couple of minutes before I had to go off to my tutor group and do what I had to do. But it was just great to say, yeah, you know, science is all about exploring and asking questions about how the world works. And I just believe that the world's been created by someone to work that way. Isn't it amazing? And he didn't, he didn't quite get it. But just to be there saying, yeah, that's, that's me. And I completely believe that. That's something I'm comfortable with and I love. It was fantastic. Um, and also, in the science office itself, you often get into conversations about interesting things and concepts and theories and all that sort of stuff. And the other day we were talking about how isn't it amazing that we get solar eclipses because the, the sun is just the right distance from the moon and they are just the right difference in sizes so that from our perspective on Earth it looks like they're the same size and they were kind of talking about it and I was like, yeah, almost as if someone designed it that way. <laughs> and they're all and then someone else comes in and yeah, or a massive coincidence and you're like, yeah, you know. But just to just to put it out there, in a, in a team of people, no one else has got, has got a, a living faith uh, like I have. And just to put it out there and say, well, this is another perspective is, is a fantastic thing. Yeah. Um, and there was, a, there was a great moment as well. Just the last thing I'll say on that is um, the other day, just trying to be normal, you know, naturally supernatural as, as we do here. I was walking back from a training session with a, with a, a, a teacher trainee. And he was sort of hobbling, and he was—he'd mentioned something about his ankle, and straight away I thought, oh, it'd be great to pray for him, but this is a bit awkward because we're—we don't see each other very often, and we're just kind of walking along, and uh, and I—I I was kind of praying in my head, like, Lord, just give me something, give me courage, give me something, and. And it got to a point where the conversation would naturally end. And I thought, ah, oh, we just haven't had enough conversation to make this normal. And then God just blessed me because straight away he kind of, where normal, normally someone might say, oh, I'll see you later. He kind of said, oh, yeah, so how's this? And I thought, yeah, this is great. And it was brilliant just to say, this might sound a little bit weird, but do you mind if I, if I pray for your ankle? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so I just, you know, got down and, and did what we usually do. It wasn't some incredible thing where he said, oh, I'm a miraculously healed. You know, tell me more about Jesus. It was, it was just a, a normal thing, or at least it seemed normal, and he was comfortable with it. So it was, it was great fun, really good fun. So how do you think your workplace would be different if you weren't there? I mean, if, we're being, if I'm being completely honest, if I wasn't there, my school would still be great. And there'd be nothing, like, the kids would still get a great education. It's a great school. Um, but another way to think about it is, if I'm not there, that's one less teacher. Well, that's, that's the only science teacher who has a faith, a living faith gone. That's one less 
teacher who is praying for the kids. That's one less teacher who goes to staff prayers and is praying for the staff. That's one less teacher who is saying prayers during our morning meetings. That's one less teacher who during science lessons can say, here's another perspective, or if someone asks them about faith, they can be honest. And, and the other thing that we have the great privilege of doing is in the mornings when we have tutor time, uh, we do these things called believe time where you'll talk about a particular Christian uh, idea or whatever. And all the teachers have to do that. And it's amazing. And you have to say the prayer. And, but most teachers will naturally just go through the slide and it's all prepared yeah. for you. But it's a real privilege to be able to pray with the students know, you know, in faith mm. and go through things with them, talk about the Bible in faith and just be there doing it you know, fully alive in, in, in Jesus. Fantastic. I wish, going back many, many decades, that my science teacher was as dynamic <laughs> as you. Thank you very much, Ben McAllen. <laughs> a friend of mine, Mark Green, he wrote a booklet called Supporting Christians at Work. And in it, he writes this. There are lots of methods of evangelism taking place in today's church. Door-to-door, -door, singing outside Tesco, sketchboarding, inviting friends to seeker services, developing relationships with our neighbors, Alpha, and so on. All good things. In reality, the one place where many people are not actively encouraged and equipped to make a difference is the place where they spend 50, 60, 70% of their waking hours. The one place where Christian and non-Christian have to meet. The one place where the playing field is even, where Christian and non-Christian are subject to the same corporate culture, the same pressures, may have the same boss. The one place where the non-Christian can actually see the difference that Christ can make to a life. Not for a couple of hours over dinner, but for 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week over a couple of years. The workplace. I wonder how many of us here are here because at some point we encountered someone else whose life seemed to be different. We were attracted to that. Maybe they treated other people with compassion or they handled the stresses and the strains of life really well. Maybe you even had conversations with them about faith, about God, and you came to faith in some way that was part of your journey yourself. And I wonder how many of us met that person through our work, whether at home, at university, in an office, in a factory, in a school. As we work for or alongside people, as people work for us, our presence there should enable others to sense God at work. That may mean simply taking opportunities to talk about our faith when they arise. It's not that we should be levering the gospel into every possible conversation, but for many of us, work does give us opportunities to speak to others about life. And indeed, if faith is part of our life, naturally to speak about our faith. It's not only through hearing about our faith that we can share with our colleagues though, because think for a moment um, of a person you encounter in your daily life that you respect. It may not just be the words they're saying, but ask yourself, what is it about them that you admire? I'd imagine that it's not only what they say, but also what they do what they're like, how they are, what they don't say, what it feels like to be around them. There are many ways beyond our words that we say that we can influence others. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma 
of the knowledge of him everywhere. The aroma. Uh, the NIV translation uses the word fragrance. Through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread. Jesus also calls us to be, as Ben referred to then, salt and light. We leave a taste in the environment we are. Our working environment should have a more pleasant taste and smell better because we're there. People at work may also be able to see that you are different. Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 5, 14 says this, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So our workplace should be a brighter place because we're there. And then lastly, when Jesus lived among people, he touched people. He was always touching people if they had leprosy, if they had blind eyes, if they were in need. He was children, he was blessing. He was very tactile as a person. And everyone he touched received healing. Sorry, received blessing in some form or another. And the Lord says to us, I want you to go out into the world, into the workplace, and if you like, fill up people's senses with me. So hearing, through the words that we say, the place should smell different because of the aroma of Christ that is with us. It should taste different, it should look different, and it should feel different. Things are supposed to be different because we're there. We're influencing our environment, we're influencing those around us. I heard a story this week of someone here at Trent doing just that and he doesn't want to be identified, but he said this, soon after starting my new job, I realized that one of my colleagues was isolated. The other, my other colleagues found him difficult, avoided him, made jokes about him behind his back, and warned me against him. I ignored their comments and chose to work with him anyway. One day I accidentally overheard him telling someone that he'd been thinking of quitting, but since I came, the dynamic of the office had really changed and he felt like he belonged. He said, if it wasn't for me, he would have left by now. I felt awkward hearing this, but I was so encouraged, and I am glad that I've been able to help him. We're called to be people of influence. And we can look this morning at a person of influence, a man called Nehemiah, a man really of quite incredible influence. He has a whole book of the Bible dedicated to him in the Old Testament, which is really just a brilliant book to read. I'd encourage you in your own time, perhaps this week, to read the book of Nehemiah. It's got so much about work in it. Uh, a lot of wisdom to do with leadership, to do with management, principles, how to plan, how to delegate, how to handle difficult people, how to handle discouragement, and on and on. And uh, we're not going to, of course, cover all that this morning, but I do want to look at what gave Nehemiah his influence. Firstly, we see that he had positional influence. Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He was the king of Persia, the most dominant superpower at the time. We find him there at about 445 BC, so nearly two and a half thousand years ago. And Artaxerxes was the most powerful man in the world. And he was a constant threat of being assassinated and overthrown. And cupbearer to the king, and the cupbearer was not a waiter, he was an officer of high rank in the royal courts. And he did serve the drinks to the king, but because of this constant threat of assassination, um, his job was to make sure the king's cup wasn't poisoned. So he would sometimes taste it himself or he would absolutely know that it was okay. And so to be appointed to this role, you know, it, it's safe to assume that he was someone of impeccable character, loyalty, integrity, trustworthiness, 
so that he couldn't be bribed to turn on the king, even though he may have actually been tempted to, because he was a Jew, and at this time, his people were held captive by his boss, by the Persians, by the Persian Empire, and yet Nehemiah had this positional influence. Wikipedia tells us this, the cupbearer's confidential relations with the king often gave him a position of great influence. This position was greatly valued and given only to a select few throughout history. But it wasn't only his position that gave him influence. You know, being near the top of the tree in a particular field of work or having social status or privilege does not automatically mean a person will have real influence. You know, certainly doesn't equate to having any positive influence for the Lord. On the other hand, there are those with very little position who can have enormous influence. Smith Wigglesworth had more spiritual authority than anyone I can think of in the Western world in history. He had an incredible healing ministry back in the early years of the last century, including uh, well-documented raising a number of people from the dead and hundreds of people coming to faith in his meetings. He was relatively uneducated. He apparently only ever read one book, the Bible. He read it over and over and over again. And coincidentally, just yesterday, unaware that I would even be mentioning this because she's just leaning to her mat to say, I just talked about this yesterday. Debbie was telling some friends about our experience of, of, of looking through his Bible because it's owned by a friend of ours. And every page is covered with scribbled, his little scribbled notes. And every page is yellowed with just hundreds, if not thousands of times of that, his hands turning those pages. He was a plumber from Yorkshire. The man who's reckoned to have had more influence for Jesus in the 19th century than anyone was D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, and he often preached to multiple thousands of people despite the lack of a PA and was used by God to just lead huge numbers of people to Christ, set up all sorts of good works. He was a shoe salesman. So position and influence, you know, the more... Uh, positional influence you have, the more possibly you can influence if you do all the other things, but it doesn't equate necessarily. You can have no position and be an incredible influencer, or you can have apparent high positional influence and really do nothing with it. So Nehemiah's role came with a, an automatic degree of positional influence, but that didn't automatically give him influence. In fact, the Bible's filled with lots of examples of people from humble positions who influenced those around them. So Jesus himself, he was a carpenter's son from a village that almost no one had heard of. And uh, I'd like to encourage all of us really here this morning to ask, you know, are we seeking opportunities to be an influence? As you've heard Ben just now, as you consider Nehemiah today, am I really using the influence that God might want me to use in my place of work? And that, my place of work, incidentally, just to be clear, whether we work in some paid capacity or not in an unpaid role, that place that God has placed us. If it wasn't his position then, what was it that gave Nehemiah such influence? Well, Nehemiah, secondly, was a person of prayer. He prayed, and he prayed frequently, involving God in his job and uh, with everything else. And we read in the opening chapter that uh, Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is in ruins, and unsurprisingly, he's greatly distressed about this, and so he prays about this quite intensively for a period of months. One of the things he prays is that God will grant him favor with the king so he can have a conversation about being released to do something about it. 
And then we pick the story up here in chapter 2 and verse 4. I'm just going to read one, one or two verses there. Chapter 2, verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. So after months of preparing through prayer for this opportunity, looking for this opportunity to come, his prayer is answered suddenly, and before doing anything else, Nehemiah prays again. And this little moment is a great example of Nehemiah healthily grafting his prayer life and his work life together. An unfortunate habit that some of us can fall into is confining prayer to certain times of the day or the week. So we might pray here on a Sunday. We might pray first thing in the morning, maybe last thing at night. But um, we can miss in doing that the opportunity to have a conversation with God throughout the day at every meaningful moment. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, as I would encourage you to, you'll find again and again and again, it just conversation, he's suddenly speaking to God instead of writing the story. He prays continually. And it's something we can directly apply, apply in our context. Before we've got this big meeting, got this crucial phone call we need to make, Lord, would you give me wisdom as I just dial this number? You can see how I old I am, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Call Debbie. When someone lets us down, when someone offends us, Lord, Lord, would you give me grace as I handle this? When we face a dilemma, Lord, what are we going to do now? Bringing God into it. We want to be sensitive to others, of course, in the way that we pray in our place of work. It may not be appropriate in our work setting to interrupt a meeting and demand 30 seconds of silence or to physically close our eyes as we pray. You know, for example, if you're a lorry driver, you might not want to be doing that. But there are moments... There will be moments where we have the opportunity to just engage with God in the course of the working day and just bring that to God as Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was a praying man and God was thoroughly involved in his work. And in the book, we just see again and again incredible answers to prayer. Thirdly, Nehemiah had the courage to do the right thing. In that culture, the king was feared to the extent that no one could walk into his presence uninvited, not even his wife, without fear of death. And even speaking when you weren't invited to speak by the king was a highly punishable offense. And so we read in chapter two that Nehemiah was pretty scared, uh, but knowing what needed to be done for Jerusalem, he cleverly decided to look sad so that the king would invite him to speak. And so we find here in verse two, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? He has his opening that he's been praying for. And then, having planned all this, he has the audacity to bring out his huge string of requests. He wants help. He wants to be able to go and help rebuild the city. He wants letters to the governors in the area so that he's going to ensure his safety and those who go with him. And he wants a number of months off work. And he comes out with that request. And then in verse 8, it says this, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And off he went. Nehemiah shows the courage here in chapter 2, and uh, if you read on in the story, he demonstrated again and again. 
he has the courage to do the right thing, even when the odds are just massively stacked against him and the people he's with. That doesn't mean he wasn't afraid. He says he was, but he had the courage to do the right thing when it came to it. Fourthly, Nehemiah was a hard worker. Just really sweepingly, you could categorize people into three categories. Uh, some people are driven, some people are just lazy, and some people are hard workers. Uh, driven, as we heard in the first talk in the series, for many of us, our self-worth is so wrapped up in our work and our career. You know, driven people arrive first at work, they're the last to leave, they're taking work home with them often. And so everything else, including God, relationships, everything else is in a very distant second to their career, which they're just pouring their life into. A driven person. Then there are those at the other end of the spectrum, and work for them is something really just to get through until 5 p.m. and they can leave. And uh, starting you know, the day with a very important task of catching up with the office gossip, and then, of course, there's the kettle to put on before catching up with uh, social media and checking all that. And those people sort of do just enough to get by. They've got a job. They're hoping not to get fired, and they're just about scraping through and making it. God doesn't invite us to be either of those things. He invites us to be hard workers, but as we've heard throughout this series, that means coming to work, to work diligently, but understanding that our self-worth does not come from our work. Nehemiah worked really hard. If you read the story, you'll see it. He really was very intentional uh, about working hard himself and getting others to join him in a very, very challenging task. And for instance, in 421, so we continued to work from sunrise till the stars came out. Now, you wouldn't want to do that long term, but for this intense period of time, when they were rebuilding the wall, there was a lot of hard work to be done. But he had hard work and prayer in balance. He was a man of action, and he was a man of prayer. We uh, pray, but we also sweat. There are some things that only God can do, but there are some things that God asks us to do. If you're a student, having just finished your exams, you will know all too well that God won't study for you. You can pray about your exams all you like, but you will not pass them unless you do the work necessary and commit to revision rather than sitting in the sun hoping the Lord will bless you on exam day. <laughs> being known for being reliable and getting the work done and working hard is respected in any job. But one of the ways that we might be influencers in the workplace is by modeling a different way of working. Working hard, yes, but not at the expense of everything else. I heard a wonderful example of this recently. Natalie, who came to faith here at Trent, was first invited here by two of her work colleagues. And Natalie explained this. They were a massive influence on me in the way they are at work. They're very dedicated to their job and really put everything into their work. But they also had time for others, and so she continues, they clearly cast their anxieties on God and are such positive people to be around. You can talk to them in confidence, without judgment, and they assist colleagues wherever possible. So Nehemiah was a person of prayer, he had courage, he worked hard, and finally, he knew that he was strategically placed in his job by God. Nehemiah was working for a foreign king who had oppressed his people, 
who was probably not the nicest person to be working for, but he knew that he was strategically placed there in that role by God. Mark Green writes in another one of his publications, Thank God It's Monday, if God is sovereign and wants the best for you, then the boss you have is the boss God wants you to have. The boss you have is the perfect boss for you right now. Now, I would just caveat that by saying you may be in a very toxic work environment and you may be, you know, the Lord would like to move you on soon. But right now, today, if he's your boss or she's your boss, the boss you have is the perfect boss for you right now. Your boss, he goes on, is not an unfortunate obstacle in your path to spiritual maturity, but far more likely to be an instrument in God's hand to bring about that spiritual maturity. God is in control of our bosses, and he is in control even when they have lost control. The story of Nehemiah has a number of similarities to another Bible story that took place in the same part of the world in a similar period of history, the story of Esther. It's the next book in the Bible. And like Nehemiah, Esther was in a position of potential influence or positional influence, but required considerable courage to assert that influence. Esther was married to Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, so the book actually predates it by a few years. Chronologically, it's just switched. And this is a carving of, of him from ancient Persia, a real guy, as these, all these Bible characters are. How did, he, how did she get to be in a position of influence? Well, she, you know, unlike Nehemiah, who was known for his impeccable character and loyalty and integrity and you know, skills and this, that, and the other, she got her job promotion really for one reason, she was physically attractive. The king fancies her, she gets the job. Now, that's not something we would encourage as a way to get a job, but that is simply <laughs> what happened to her. But whatever the way you find yourself into a place of influence, God was at work behind the scenes. She was strategically placed to have close access to the king at a time of massive crisis for the people of God. And her uncle says this to her in Esther 4.14. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. A few weeks ago, Ollie reminded us that wherever we are in life, God has strategically placed us so that we would influence those around us. And people of influence understand this and they're constantly on the lookout for those moments. This is the time. Who knows but that I'm here for such a time as this. So a patient is dying. The family is gathered around. This is the time. A colleague is going through a divorce, needs someone to talk to and process stuff with. This is the time. A customer is angry, is upset. You're the one brought into this. This is the time. God put you in this position for such a time as this. And it won't just be the one time in your career. It'll be as long as you're looking for those moments, God has put you there for such a time as this. And uh, wherever we, you know, I'd encourage you to look for those times, wherever we find ourselves, whether in a paid role or otherwise, uh, look for those times where God has placed you there for such a time. So Nehemiah's source of influence was way beyond his positional influence. And part of what contributed to that, as we've seen, he prayed, he was courageous, he worked hard. He knew that he was strategically placed there, and he, he just walked in that confidence. And the invitation this morning is really to learn from Nehemiah's story, to be influencers 
for God. And with so many of us gathered here today, imagine all the different places that God has placed each, each one of us, has placed each one of us across Nottingham, way beyond Nottingham and other cities, places that might be influenced because we're there. This coming week, hundreds if not more workplaces could be different having heard this message. So I'd encourage you this morning not to be concerned about whether or not you have real recognized positional influence. Um, pray about your job, pray while at work, pray for your colleagues, pray you'll be able to fill up people's senses with the Lord. I love that little concept, I got it from Rich Nathan many years ago. The fragrance, the flavor, the light that people would hear, that people would be touched by our being there. And when you face a difficult situation where you know <clears throat> for you to do what you know that is the right thing is involving a risk, carefully pray about it, think it through, and then take your courage in both hands and go for it. Many Christians are too constrained. Many of their colleagues don't even know they are Christians. Uh, and they, they, when they, oh, I should probably say something, I should probably do something, I should probably not do something, they're too cowardly, to be honest, to do that. And I think there's probably a kick up the backside moment here from the book of Nehemiah to say, actually, Take your courage in both hands and be the ambassador God has called you to be. Work hard. Do a fine job. Be an exemplary employee, but with a balanced life, you know, which cares about people as well as tasks, cares about your colleagues as well as, well as your own workload, and lives a life worthy of respect. And realize that God put you there. For now, at least, God has put you there. You may be thinking this morning, but my, my job really isn't that valuable. It's not very significant. I'm only a dot, dot, dot. You can fill your own gap in. I'm, you know, I'm not really anything. It doesn't amount to much. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter whether you are paid for the work you do or whether you have a voluntary role or you do something else that's not paid. You are a full-time missionary. You are an ambassador for Christ. And you are unique. God has ordained that you are where you are for such a time as this. If you don't step up to that plate and do what God has called you to do, what God has intended there is not going to happen. You're the only person who is where you are. If we are responsive to doing the Lord's will and believe that God gave us the work that we currently have, then we can be confident that he has placed us where we are and he's called every one of us to influence that working environment for him.